The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Let's talk a little music copyright this week. Our guest is an intellectual property attorney and the co-founder and managing partner at Aaron Sanders PLLC based in Nashville. He has taught at Vanderbilt Law and is a sought-after expert on music copyright law. And you can find out more about his work by visiting www.aaronsanderslaw.com. We are happy to welcome Rick Sanders onto the Break the Business Podcast. Hi, Rick. Hey, how's it going? It's going so well. Let let me get right into it. So for the past couple of years, Rick, I've had a lot of musicians, particularly indie artists, express some measure of, we'll call it concern, about recent copyright lawsuits where you're seeing these renowned songwriters ending up in legal hot water for songs that they've written that seem to incorporate musical elements of previous songs. You have artists like Pharrell and Robin Thicke in the Blurred Lines case. You have Ed Sheeran ending up with this kind of stuff and a lot of other artists facing litigation. And I've had artists come up to me that are worried about a potential chilling effect on creativity, basically songwriters becoming more afraid that they might one day write something that happens to sound something similar to something that came out before, and now they're on the wrong end of an infringement claim. But in the last few days, there have been a lot of recent rulings, or at least a couple of note, that seem to have reversed this trend uh, to the benefit of Led Zeppelin and Katy Perry that suggest that maybe courts are moving in a more pro-defendant, pro-songwriter direction here. And I know you wrote a blog article recently on your website about this, talking about the Led Zeppelin ruling, and and so I wanted to chat with you about it. Uh, What can you tell us about that case that was most interesting to you? Well, there are are two really interesting uh, pieces of the case that I think would affect um, the, the song independent songwriters that you're talking about. Um, and just a little bit of background. I mean, the Ninth Circuit is this very influential court in terms of copyright law because it and the second, which is based in New York, and the ninth is, of course, based out in, in the West and includes Los Angeles, um, they tend to get most of the copyright cases and the other circuits tend to be influenced by them so it's really important to keep track of what the second and the ninth are doing. And for a long time, the ninth circuit's been very confusing. And in a way that has been pretty beneficial to plaintiffs. And one of the things that was very confusing was what it, what it means for two songs or two works to be too similar. And that was because the Ninth Circuit was mixing up two kinds of similarity. And that's because when you um, have to prove infringement, it turns out there's there's more to it than just saying there happen to be elements in common. There's actually a first step before that, which is copying. It's it's called, you know, the word copy is in the word copyright. And you, you actually have to, you have to, the plant has to prove a connection between the alleged infringer and the copyrighted work. And we are allowed to look at similarities uh, between the works in order to establish copying, but this is a different mindset than 
when we look at whether those similarities are the are wrongful or illegal. You're taking too much of the wrong kinds of things. And that's because when we're trying to prove copying, what we're trying to prove is this connection. So I have to prove that you had some access to the underlying work or else you're going nowhere fast. But I also have to prove that you actually got, you actually got ideas at least, or you were at least influenced by this, this work. And, and the example I used to teach my students, it's not a music example, unfortunately, but, um, but it's, 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 if you can imagine somebody um, in a library, they have a book and they're, they're writing, look like they're, maybe they're taking notes, but you're not sure, right? They could be um, multitasking. And if we brought, if we wanted to prove copyright infringement, we, we would wanna see, first of all, do they have access to the book? The answer is yes, we saw them, but we're not done yet because they could have been multitasking. They could have been writing a, a, a grocery list. We don't know. We have to at least see what it is they wrote and see if there's some connection between the two. And since we have really good evidence of access, maybe we don't need so much evidence of this kind of similarity. What's really important about this, what we sometimes call probative similarity, is that we will look at elements that are both protectable and non-protectable. And that's where, that, that's, where this, that's where the real problem starts to arise. Because once we prove that, we have to turn and say, well, did you take too much of the wrong kinds of things? And now we're really interested in just protectable uh, content. And for a long time, the Ninth Circuit just mixed those up and it made it pretty easy on the uh, plaintiff to just put forth a lot of evidence. They, they were, you know, the, the, the law sometimes would just say, you have to prove just access and substantial similarity. And access is often fairly easy to prove. Substantial similarity, you can prove a few elements that show some connection and juries would sometimes then find infringement when maybe they shouldn't. So that's the first thing that I thought was really interesting about, about the decision because the decision now makes very clear those are two different inquiries. We first look at the copying, and then we look at whether um, protectable elements were misappropriated. Right on. And I've always wanted to ask a copyright lawyer this who works, you know, who's, who's worked in the music space. You talked earlier about protectable versus non-protectable elements. And I think a lot of artists and some lawyers like this one on this side of the interview are often quite confused about what, what, what courts mean when they say like certain musical elements, you can copy those and those aren't protectable, but some elements are. Can you provide any sort of insight, shed any kind of light for the listeners out there about what might make musical elements protectable versus non-protectable in a lawsuit? Well, this is clearly going to be the harder question going forward. And we've taken the first step, but even this case, the, 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 the um, Skidmore versus Led Zeppelin case, gives us some hints about how we might look at that, answer that question going forward. There's a footnote that everybody's been talking about, number 13. So, so what's protectable is material or content that originates 
from the um, artist's uh, own mind. That's why we call it original expression. And there, there has to be some kind of creative spark. But beyond that, the law doesn't tell us very much. And in particular, the law doesn't, the law doesn't tell us very much about um, what we might call uh, higher level connections or, or higher level structures within um, a work such as, such as a, a, a song. I mean, you can think of um, a, a song as being composed of many, many unprotectable little elements in the, um, uh, in, in the Led Zeppelin case, chromatic scales were said not to be protectable because they belong to everybody. I like to think of it as a kind of toolkit that artists within a certain field all have access to that's not protectable. But at some point we build structures with those unprotectable elements that start to look original and creative. How many notes until we have a tune that we can recognize and then and that can be taken inappropriately. We're not really sure, but the court here gave us, gave us some direction and told us to think in terms of range of expression. So the more, the more notes, for example, that I have in a tune, the wider the range of expression and the thicker the protection. And the, the and it, where but where we have fewer notes, either it's below a certain threshold where we just won't protect it. It's too short, too trivial. Um, but it but then the protection gets thinner and thinner. And what we mean by thinner is the thinner the protection, the more similar the um, the two works have to be with respect to that element. And as it gets thicker, the range of protection gets broader as the range of expression. Uh, gets gets broader. The, the the court that again that's a footnote. It's it's probably what lawyers call dicta, but um, I I think it points in a in a in a flexible yet articulable towards a flexible but articulable rule uh, about how to protect or how to say what is a, an element that can be protected. And what we're, what we're looking for with any copyright rule is something that's both flexible because remember any copyright rule we come up with has to work not only with music, but with literature and with paintings and with software, um, you know, computer programming and sculpture and industrial design. It has to apply to all that. So it has to be very flexible, but it has to be articulable, something that we um, can apply across the board. Um, and I, I think this, 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 I think I have, I have great hope for this as, as a, an emerging rule. Part of me has also wondered, you know, what, whether, whether music should perhaps have a different standard for infringement, or at least the way in courts interpret the law relative to other forms of art. It just seems to me, and, and maybe this is just because I'm sort of music biased because I work in this industry more often and, you know, I'm trying to protect my music clients, but when I think of the fact that there's there's really only so many chords and there's really only so many scales and there's only, you know, 14 notes on a piano or whatever it is and there's only so many octaves on a piano, it just seems to me that the 
the chances of creating something that sounds like something that came before uh, just seems to have a greater likelihood than it might in other forms of art. And I almost wonder if what the solution has to be is courts really have to sort of treat music differently than other art forms and maybe just make the copyrights that are protected in music generally thinner to, to leave it only to like pretty obvious forms of copying like piracy or, you know, just a, a straight up cover or something like that. Um, is that the solution here? Is that even realistic? Well, I don't know if that's realistic because treating different works differently is not supported in the Copyright Act. So I, I would... Um, I would I would assume that we would need an act of Congress to um, uh, to, to have at least a bright a, a brighter line rule. Having said that, the court here seems to have heard very loudly and clearly from the, from various amici um, who I think get a lot of should get a lot of praise for kind of breaking through here that. Oh, so just to, just to mention real quick, uh, uh, what what is amici for the for the folks that are uh, listening? So so, so am, amici are people who are not parties to the case, but um, feel like that they they um, have arguments that the parties might not make that the court ought to hear. And in this case, you know, interest groups, particularly those who are representing songwriters, uh, more generally, who. We're expressing the worry that you had expressed earlier in the podcast, I think really got through to the Ninth Circuit that music is different. It, you don't have to treat it you know, categorically different. You just have to understand that where the range of expression is more limited, the, the, um, uh, the, the protection is going to be thinner. And I think... So you don't really need a, a blanket rule so much as you start to need to realize some things about music that is is just different, factually different, instead of legally different, just factually different. Range of expression is more limited because popular music is not only is it limited to a you know the the, the Western um, uh, you know the the, the Western uh, note structure, but pop music is very self-referential um it's 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 you know it it has to be popular so it has to appeal to audiences who have the you know who have a limited sense of what they want to hear um you know, often what you want to hear is something similar to what you heard before and so popular music is you know i mean when i, when I talk to songwriters I, they often tell me what um you know, one of the big challenges is, is um, to be creative and original when um, you know when when you're when you're when the range of expression is kind of is a little more limited, and um, and I think now the 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 Ninth Circuit has accepted that at least at least in dicta. I think it's going to be really influential across the country. So do you see this as sort of the beginning of a trend? Like we, we saw cases like the Blurred Lines case, you know, where, where it seemed like, you know, we were taking a very pro-plaintiff pro posture. Do you see these recent rulings in the Katy Perry case and the um, Stairway to Heaven Led Zeppelin case as perhaps 
the a, a the beginning of the pendulum broadly swinging in the other direction, you're going to see a lot more pro-defendant music copyright rulings. I, I think so. Um, the, the Katy Perry case is an odd coincidence, I, I think, because um, it, it came out so soon. But this is an en banc Ninth Circuit decision. And by en banc for, for, the, for the listeners, that's when uh, the, you know, the entire Ninth Circuit panels so is like a super Ninth Circuit goes out of its way to really analyze, write a very thoughtful opinion that's meant to be influential. And it's out of one of the most influential courts. And it seems to go out of its way to distance itself from what happened in blurred lines. So I, I, I think the answer is yes. It's, it's, I think this is going to swing the pendulum back the other way because uh, this was just so high profile. It, the, the, and the opinion was clearly intended to be read by other circuits yeah, if it if we do see a change, boy, that change happened quick because the that that particular blurred lines ruling wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of copyright law. So it's it's interesting to see that shift happening so quickly in real time. You can find out more about our guests' work by visiting www.aaronsanderslaw.com. Rick Sanders, our guest, shedding the light on some very complicated law and and providing some really helpful insight for all of you songwriters out there. We, of course, very much appreciate it. Rick, this has been a treat. Before we let you go, do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Well, now, of course, I I can't I can't help with the, the actual technique. Um, I, I, I admire, I mean, one reason why I enjoy being a copyright lawyer is I, I get to meet other creatives and see how they work. And of course, I realize I, I, all I can do is help them as a lawyer. So then my advice from that perspective would be learn how to learn, learn the ins and outs of registering your work. Um, you might You might ask a lawyer how it's done, but learn to do it yourself, learn to do it regularly, um, learn to do it in a way that is cost effective. There are ways to, for example, bundle works together under just one uh, filing fee and just get used to doing it yourself. Um, you know, publishers and labels, they have paralegals who do this all the time. And if you're independent, I think you owe it to yourself to learn the nuts and bolts of the registration process and to and to do it regularly with newly created works absolutely that's really powerful advice we've spoken on this podcast before listeners about the legal advantages that you get to registering your copyrights and why it's so important and and i agree with rick on this i I mean there are very few legal or legal-ish tasks that i would ever recommend that an artist in most cases could do on their own without necessarily getting a lawyer involved but a simple basic copyright registration in most cases is something that I think an artist can do. And there's a lot of great tools out there that exist on the tech side, uh, platforms like Cosigned, that's C-O-S-Y-N-D, that actually provide some great copyright registration assistance through their platform. Uh, a lot of great stuff you can check out there. Uh, you can find out more one more time with our about our guest work by visiting AaronSandersLaw.com. Rick, thank you so much for being on this week. Hey, thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to the Break the Business podcast. Stay safe out there.